So we started last week a series called The Story of God, and we're going to take you through in 10 weeks um, Genesis through to Revelation. And as we said, we're going to be doing this for four hours every day to make sure we get through it all. That was a joke. Uh, but we are going to be able to kind of have a, um, a bird's eye view. But what's beneficial about that is that it helps us get the big picture. And so we want to fit key stories into that overarching story and really see that the Bible is one story with many chapters. Last week we looked at the uh, Genesis chapter 1 to 3 and it, we described it as the seed of the Bible tree. And pretty much every theme in scripture really can be traced back to those three chapters. And what we noticed was that uh, Genesis 1 to 3 is not a scientific document. And lots of people really um, say that maybe even the reason why they don't want to be a Christian is because Genesis 1 to 3 cannot be reconciled with modern science. And I'm here to, to put that to rest. Uh, Genesis 1 to 3 is not talking about anything that modern science is talking about. The first verse is that God created the heavens and the earth, and that's as scientific as you get. And from then on, it's, it's describing another story, and it's really about how God made the world to have a relationship with us. And what we looked at last week is that we get caught, even though that God has this amazing plan that's very good, we get caught in a cycle of mistrust, a broken relationship, what the Bible would call sin, and then God drawing us back. And what we're going to find through the story of Scripture, that God is going through this, and we're going through this cycle over and over again. In Genesis chapter 6, we pick up this cycle uh, just before the time of Noah, if you know that Bible character. It says in verse 1 and then verse 5, When human beings began to increase in number on the earth, the Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth, and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. And that, that's a sobering description of the world. And so what God does is he, he floods the earth. He saves Noah, one person, one family, and he floods the earth. And this uh, flooding can be seen as a time of a, a symbol of the chaos that had come over the earth, but it can also be seen when we think of uh, water baptism, of a cleansing of the earth. So God cleans it and starts over again through one family, Noah. But the cycle just keeps continuing. And in Genesis 11, we see the people, uh, it's debated over what's going on, but they're building this kind of great structure that seems to be in defiance of God, that uh, becomes known as the Tower of Babel, because in that moment, God then spreads out humanity, gives them different languages, and disperses them uh, all around the earth. So we pick up the story in Genesis chapter 12 about a particular character that we're going to spend today looking at. Before we look at him, I want to uh, ask you a question. If you were a king, imagine that, isn't that a warm thought already? Lots of power, get to wear cool stuff. Uh, if you were a king and your subjects were rebellious towards you, what would you do? What would be your plan of action 
to try to take a rebellious kingdom and try to unify it uh, uh, so that it could be a good and enjoyable place for everyone. What, what kind of things would you do? Uh, would you put all of the bad people in jail? Would that be, you know, the place where you would start? Would you have some kind of uh, propaganda where you would talk about just what an amazing leader you really are deep down and you should all, you know, get in line and, and, and do what you want to see happen in the country? What would you do to create a unified, loving kingdom? Now, when we look at what God's idea was, I think it's shocking. Because you have, on the face of the earth, just like what goes on all the time in this cycle, is you have people mistrusting you and then breaking relationship with one another. And so his big plan to save the world is to build a friendship with one guy and his family. That's his big plan. That's a little weird. Like, shouldn't he do something more global? Uh, you know, but no, he says, I've got this fantastic idea because of all that's going on that's wrong in the world, I've got to invest in one person and one family. And this guy's name is Abram. And his name gets changed to Abraham later on. But he's Abram. We pick up the story then in Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 to 4. It says, The Lord said to Abram, Go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. So I'm going to bless you, and you're going to bless others. I'm going to love you. You're going to love others. All peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So Abram went as the Lord had told him. I was thinking about our... Uh, uh, what we talked about in our Vision Sunday a few weeks ago. And we were talking about believing for one. And, you know, we look at all that's not going well in our personal lives, the world around us, the city, the nation. There's lots of problems. And we're inviting you to do something very similar to what God's plan was, to invest in one. And somehow, if we do that well, we're going to see some... Some pretty cool things happen. But God's answer to uh, human unfaithfulness is to faithfully love someone. And the fancy word for this is covenant. Now, we don't use that word very much these days uh, because I don't think it's very popular that people want to enter into a covenant relationship. But... Uh, What's remarkable is that God's solution for all of the world's problems is to enter into a covenant to be a, a faithful, loving God to a particular person and his family. This he understands to be the antidote for everything that's wrong in the world. Now, while it sounds kind of small, it actually makes sense. 
that if the primary problem in the world is unfaithfulness, then what God is going to demonstrate is faithfulness, a faithful love. Now, sadly, if we remember last week that the primary problem is mistrust, what we can think is that the way that God should have dealt with mistrust is not so much through being faithful, but through having proofs. Uh, your don't, you know, we struggle to trust him. We look at all that's going wrong in the world. And so what we want is we want some proof that's going to show that God really is trustworthy, really is a good guy. And so he should present himself as showing himself strong and capable and loving. And he should show that to the world. Um, okay. What is the primary reason why uh, you doubt God? is there's not enough evidence. You prayed for something that was really meaningful to you. Someone is, is, is sick. Um, you wanted to do well in an exam. You're, you're struggling in your finances, and so you hoped for a better job. And you pray sincerely, and God doesn't answer. And so the natural response is, look, uh, you want me to trust in you, the way that you're going to help me trust in you is if you give me some proof. And proof primarily is answered prayer. It's showing yourself to be great and loving. I want to see some evidence, and if I can see some evidence, then I'm going to trust in you. What we find consistently in Scripture is... God giving a, a promise, such as we see in Genesis 12. He did it with Noah uh, uh, generations earlier. He does it with David. On and on it goes. Moses, he gives a promise, and then there's this huge gap of waiting. And so, you know, what he should be doing is giving a promise and then giving an immediate proof that I'm going to be good on that promise. And he doesn't do that. With Noah, it's estimated that between him telling uh, Noah that he's going to build an ark that's going to save him and some animals, to the time when the flood came that destroyed the earth, that the time frame between the original promise and the event happening is 100 years. Now imagine you're 75 building a boat in a field. All righty then, this is a little tricky. It's been 75 years. You haven't spoken to me again. All right. Um, there, is a, there is a quote by someone who's a little bit controversial, so we won't get into all that he necessarily teaches, but it's a, it's a helpful quote, and I, I have it up for you. And it's, this is by a man named Walter Brueggemann. And this is what he said. We all have a hunger for certitude. Certitude is a, is a fancy word. Oh, can we click? We can't click. We all have a hunger for certitude. Certitude is just certainty, facts, proofs, evidence. 
We all have a hunger for certitude. And the problem is that the gospel is not about certitude, it's about fidelity. Because fidelity is a relational category, and certitude is a flat mechanical category. Isn't that an interesting thought? That we want certitude, we want facts, we want evidence. And what God says is, I'll give you something better than evidence, I'll walk with you through the valleys of life. I'll never leave you, I'll never forsake you, but I am not promising that everything is gonna go in the way that you want, how you want it, at the time that you want it, because that's not what trust is built on. Trust is built on the fact that I would be faithful, intimate, walking with you, even when there is not evidence. Now, I don't know about you, but that is a radically different foundation that we might want or that we want to tell other people. When you think about telling other people about Jesus, have you noticed that you skip bits called most of your life? And you just tell the bits that are cool. Um, I was telling, we just had Kingdom Life Ministry School, and I was late here because I was, anyways, uh, it's a great time. And uh, uh, one time we went on a missions trip to Mexico, and we're driving back. Really cool stuff went on there. You know, people being healed and coming to Christ, really cool stuff. And on the way back, we're, we're driving on the I-5 through Los Angeles, you know, those, what those freeways are like. And uh, somebody, I don't know how to say this, any, they needed a pee break. And so what we did is we pulled over on the, on the side of the road, there's a guy, and uh, he did his thing, and then we take off again, and we're, we drive for, like I'm back up to speed, and then he goes, my wallet dropped out of the car. I, I mean, out of his pocket when he was, you know, doing what he was doing. What are we gonna do? So uh, I'm young and ignorant, so what I do is, I, it's, it's at night, and I back up the car on the I-5. You're not supposed to do this. I back up the car on the I-5 for a while. I don't know how long to back up the car for, but I'm doing it for a while. And then I feel I should stop now. And so he opens the door, there's his wallet. He picks up his wallet and we drive away. Isn't that amazing? Like it's right there. He goes, that's it. <laughs> like we were driving. And he picks it up and drive away. Super cool story. Uh, I don't tell the story of how me and my Christian brothers and sisters were arguing in the car for hours before that. I don't tell that part of the story. I tell the cool part of the story. So what we end up doing, because we think that faith is built on evidence, we embellish our Christian experience. And we skip over the valleys and just talk about the mountaintops because that's what we think sells Christianity well. And God, shockingly, 
is not insecure. And he's happy to tell the full story. Like the wallet part, that's super cool. And then how you kept bickering with one another in Jesus' name or whatever. You know, it wasn't nearly as remarkable. He tells the whole story. Gives promises to you and then waits years to answer those promises. If maybe ever in the way that we understand promises to be answered. God chooses one man to have a covenant relationship with and to build Abraham's faith so that he can be mighty in his life. And the fruit of that, after years and years of mostly valleys, is Abraham and Sarah get pregnant once. And the full history of the Old Testament culminating in Jesus becomes a reality because one child is born through one man who was figuring out how to have a trust relationship with God. Now, I don't know about you, but don't we underestimate how valuable it is to build a trust relationship? Now, a relationship that's built on evidence isn't trust at all, is it? It's called evidence. And yet God, for some reason, feels very comfortable in calling you and I into a trust relationship, a covenant relationship that he would prove himself faithful even when the evidence seems to point in the opposite direction. So, after a while, Abram becomes discouraged. Uh, God promises him uh, offspring. It's not happening. And he's getting old, and she's getting old. And so God reminds Abram of his promise. Still not answering it, but reminds him yet again, I am faithful. I walk in covenant with you. And listen to how Abram responds. Abram believed the Lord, and he credited it to him as righteousness. What if all of the valleys, all of the unanswered prayers, all of the discouragement, the lack of fruit, what if God is wanting to accomplish one thing in your life for you to trust your Father in heaven? What if that's what's going on? What a different way of looking at the troubles in this life. Because what's true about Abram is true about us. He is looking for a people who will trust him. And that's all he's ever been looking for. And when humans decide to trust him, amazing things happen. This is the story he's described in the Bible as our father, Abraham. This is the story of our father. And as we're his son and daughter, we work through the same issue.
So we find in Abram the opposite of Adam and Eve, who instead of mistrust, he chose trust. And the result was righteousness. They, it's a confusing word for us, I think. It means right relationship. It means he fulfilled his part of the covenant and trusted in God. Now, look at what God does in response. So Abraham, he's only got one thing going for him. He trusted in God. He, uh, he didn't believe God that he could have a child through his, his wife, and so he slept with one of his concubines. Uh, we know that he lied at least twice. Um, not stellar, but he has one thing going for him, and it's the thing that God cares about more than anything else. He trusted in God. But knowing Abram's frailty, look at what God did. He does a very interesting thing. It says in, um, in chapter 15, The Lord said to him, said to Abram, Bring me a heifer, a goat, and a ram, each three years old, along with a dove and a young pigeon. Abraham brought all these things to him, cut them in two, and arranged the halves opposite each other. Now, um, back at this time in human history, uh, there weren't any lawyers drawing up, you know, fancy contracts. The contract, if you were to, to engage in a, in a commitment with another person, uh, what you would do is this. You would uh, slaughter animals, cut them in half, and walk between them. The point of that was... Uh, if you break your commitment, I'm going to do to you what we did to these animals. Subtle. Uh, but that's, that's what this meant, is that's what's going on. So he cuts the animals in two, and he's setting up what is considered to be a normal contract to be made. But let's read on in the story. So everything is following what's expected. But then, as the sun was setting, Abram fell into a deep sleep. And when the sun had set, and I'm skipping a part, and when the sun had set and darkness had fallen, a smoking fire pot with a blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram and said, to your descendants I will give this land, reinforcing the promise. Now, what is this fire pot and blazing torch? Well, it's a symbol of the Spirit of God coming and consuming those sacrifices. What's the point? God looks and says, you're not going to fulfill this contract. <laughs> Let's just be honest. The odds are impossible. You already lie. You've already slept with somebody. You weren't, it's not going to happen. But you know what? Trust is enough for me. And so what I'll do is I'll fulfill the covenant on our behalf. I'll go through. You can't go through. I'll put you in a deep sleep. Um, and I'm going to fulfill both sides of the agreement. Isn't that a beautiful thought? This is what God does for us. The contract became a covenant. Here's the deal. You trust me, and I'll fulfill my promises. Are you in? I don't know what we do these days. Are you in? This is all that God is ever asking of us, and he fulfills the rest of the relationship. 
He's asking for a people who would get around to trusting him. Giving up the demand for evidence. Giving up the demand for answered prayers the way that we think it should be. And saying, will you trust me in spite of the evidence, which I think is what the definition of trust is. So it was with Abraham, it is to this day. In Galatians 3.9 it says, So those who rely on faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. This is all that God has ever asked of us, is to trust him. And he will prove himself faithful in his time and in his way. Now, I want to conclude with asking you another question. So if you were God, um, what would you name yourself? Because <laughs> you're God, you can, you know, <laughs> you can name yourself. And so, you know, what would you name yourself? Would you name yourself after your motive? You know, you would call yourself the love God. That's a cool name. Hi, I'm the love God. <laughs> Would you name yourself after your motive? Would you name yourself after your abilities? Now, we know this with superheroes. The Flash. Spider-Man. Aquaman. That's so cool. Yeah, that's who I am. Now, listen to the name that God gives himself. Uh, it's, it's said repeatedly. I'm just going to choose the one where it's repeated in, in Exodus 3, verse 15. It says, Say to the Israelites, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. That's his kids. So Abraham, his son Isaac, and then Jacob, whose name gets changed to Israel, which is the Israelites, the Jews, has sent me to you. This is my name, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This is my name forever. The name you shall call me from generation to generation. Here you have an almighty, all-powerful God, pure love, unequaled authority, sovereign. And he says, I want you to call me the God of of Bob, Bill, and Melody. Because Bob trusted me in spite of the evidence. He had a son and daughter. That's, that's who I am. I'm the God of my friends. I define myself according to my covenant relationships. I don't define myself as some grand and lofty name. I'm the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That's who I am. The humility of God, the relational priority of God, is thoroughly overwhelming. Amazingly, through Abraham's family line, through Israel, and then culminating in Jesus Christ, God's plan succeeds. Listen to Revelation 21, this grand plan of one man trusting him. Look, 
God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. God succeeds through one man in creating a nation that trusts him, that is blessed, and that blesses others. It works. Now, there's going to be some dips and valleys between here and there, but the plan works. God will have a family who walks in covenant relationship with him. So my question to you in closing is, will you covenant with God? Will you trust him? Will you let yourself be known as one who trusts in your heavenly Father even when the evidence does not stack up? Um, let me just close with this. Helen Patterson uh, came over, this was before Christmas, and uh, I don't know if I can't quite see her. And uh, she says, uh, I was praying for you, and uh, sorry that this is about me, but it means a lot, and I'd like to share it with you. She says, I was praying for you, and I asked God, uh, what do you call Greg? <laughs> now I'm interested. Like, what, what do you call Greg? And she says, I heard, I heard one word. Oh, there you are. I heard one word, chosen. Now, that's done me in for a few months now. I can't get over that. That my Heavenly Father chose me to trust Him. I, I, I don't want to be known as anything other than that. Pastor doesn't interest me. Um, whatever worker, whatever. But that I'm chosen by my Father to have a relationship with Him built on trust, covenant? Yeah. I want to be, that, yeah. I'd like, I'd like that to be my name. My friends, uh, we're going to be moving next week. I don't know whether that's going to be a good move or a bad move. I don't know. We're trying to follow Jesus. And at least for a number of months, I believe that God is calling us to a more public place to bring the church into the world and not just be in a neighborhood. I don't know whether we'll come back or not. I really don't know. And... Uh, the elders and board and, and staff of this church are just trying to serve you and do what we believe is best for you and best for this city. I don't know if we're doing a good job. I don't know. I don't know if Langara, if some of you aren't going to be able to come because of work and it's going to be more complicated somehow, or it's going to be in a theater. Maybe you won't like the theater. I don't know. Could we please be found faithful to the covenant? That at the end of the day, we would be sons and daughters of our Father. Some things went well, some things didn't go very well. But the kingdom of God was built 
on one man having one kid. You know, if you're a pastor, the, the, the pressure to grow a church to be big is just, man, I don't like it very much. And I've obviously not been very good at it. But what if there's a whole other criteria that God has for his people? Will the Son of Man find faith when he returns? Will we be found faithful to the covenant of a God who has only ever asked us for one thing? Trust me. And as we trust him, he will fulfill his promises in ways that we could never imagine. But will we be found faithful, chosen as a son or daughter? If we could have the worship team please come up, I'd like to pray for us. Could we please stand? Father, I thank you that when you describe what our earthly spiritual father who he is it wasn't Moses who led a people out of slavery it wasn't Joshua who took over a, a land it wasn't David who who set up a kingdom it wasn't even Paul who gave us the theology we have today it was Abraham, a man who had one child, and that was enough for over a hundred years of following you. I don't know what our child is, I don't know, but I know that the whole point was that you were working out how to have one man trust you. And I pray now for my brothers and sisters that you would, by your grace, Enable us to be found faithful to the covenant. Trusting you in your promises that you are a good God, sometimes in spite of the evidence. And when all is said and done, please, can we be found faithful as our father Abraham was. In the name of your dear son, in whom all promises are fulfilled.